This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Interesting survey came out uh, a little while ago by the the good people Angus Reid. Barely, it says, uh, barely, but Canadians may be ready for a prime minister who covers his or her head for religious reasons. And breaking down this survey to uh, talk with us this afternoon is uh, the uh, professor from the University of Ottawa, Noor El Cowdery. He is the professor at the Telfer School of Management, to be more specific. Uh, Noor, uh, good afternoon. Welcome to the program. How are you? Good afternoon, Ted. I'm doing great. How are you? Thank you very much. Uh, so the survey from Angus Reid, and we can break down, there's a whole lot of uh, figures in this. Uh, more than two-thirds of Canadians polled believe that Canada is likely to have a gay prime minister within the next 25 years. That, along with uh, what we had mentioned earlier about um, Canadians may be ready for a prime minister who covers his or her head with religious reasons. Um, are you surprised by the results of this survey from Angus Reid? Uh, I'm really surprised that uh, Angus Reid would uh, commission such a survey uh, in such a way that it is not unsci- it's not scientific. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would completely dismiss the results of such a survey. Uh, while we would love to see results like these, and um, these are promising ideas, if the survey was a scientific one. What is troubling is... You read about the survey, and then they tell you, sorry, we cannot give you a margin of error in that survey because the population size that we've surveyed is not a random one. Right. And that, that completely makes the survey an invalid uh, survey. Uh, this, is, this is really troubling news when we get uh, organizations like uh, Angus Reid, who have a very high reputation, and all the media covers them, and this story is all over the news, uh, to see that well, it might have been a survey that was geared towards some population in order to influence some results, and then give those results out there, and then the media would talk about them. Now, uh, uh, it's interesting. Sorry to cut you off. Uh, it, it was a survey of 1,533 Canadian adults from May 24th to uh, 28th. That that yeah. That really doesn't seem like a real big, broad cross-section of Canada, does it? Um, well, from a scientific perspective, you can have a survey commissioned with 1,500 people, and you can extrapolate the results and have a scientific uh, result based on such a number of 1,500 people. It's a good number if the numbers were if the numbers were random. But uh, themselves, Angus Reid, in the survey itself, they say that they cannot have a margin of error because the numbers are not random, and they give those as a last comment in the survey. So they present the results, people start talk about them, and uh, then they, became news, they become news of the day. And later on, they tell you at the, in the bottom corner that um, we can't have a margin of error, and this uh, survey is not scientific. And they attack themselves. Okay? They, they keep some credibility to themselves, but for them to keep credibility is only to commission scientific surveys when they bring them to the media edit. It raises the question that, is this a survey that is paid by somebody else? Is this a survey that was done in order to uh, do uh, notes uh, or give notes that, uh, that are going to influence uh, some campaign? Um, um, I'm, I'm really not sure. But another alarming thing in the results, for instance, when they were looking at, uh, at the numbers, um, they talk about 56%. Uh, favoring a Sikh prime minister, mm-hmm. but there are 58% that would favor a Muslim prime minister, for instance. 
And then you see the news talking about a gay or a Sikh prime minister as head titles. Uh, perhaps because Jagmeet Singh is in the leadership race for the NDP, as a major political party. Um, are they trying to influence that uh, that race or do something in favor of Jagmeet Singh? Uh, I, I don't know. I just we you you, you start speculating uh, when when these numbers come uh, come out, and then they start to gear them in the discussion and in the titles of newspapers about a particular group, while they're not probably in the lead. I'm I'm curious. You, know, you talk about the uh, Jagmeet Singh, uh, the NDP MPP, who's representing uh, Bramley. When you looked at the results of the survey, and we said there were fifteen hundred uh, and, and change, did we know the uh, the breakdown of those that uh, expressed the interest in the vote? Was it evenly split from say Central Ontario, uh, Central Ontario, Central Canada, Eastern Canada, Western Canada, or do you have any concerns about maybe which way the vote uh, or the survey was uh, swung, so to speak? Yeah. Well, uh, this is absolutely uh, swung when you don't have when you don't have uh, details. Um, as soon as you lose the uh, randomness in any statistical survey. It becomes it becomes illegitimate. Its numbers become unscientific, and you cannot draw any conclusions from them. And uh, I taught for, uh, statistics at the University of, uh, of Ottawa, and we this is what we teach our students in basic statistics. Whenever you want to commission a survey, you need to eliminate bias. And in order for you to be objective, random you have to have a sample that is representative of the population, and it must be random. And the larger the sample it is, the better it is, because we could bring down the margin of error. In this survey, we can't even talk about margin of error. Even 10% or 20% is, 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 uh, is not something that we can talk about. And that tells you that this is a very false survey. I would dismiss that 100%. I wouldn't talk about such a survey. I would really be interested to see um, the progressiveness of Canadians talking about having a um, gay prime minister, or a uh, or a, or somebody from a religious minority, whether it be it Muslim or Sikh or any others, uh, that those are important figures to look at. But the basic premise of commissioning the survey is completely wrong. The assumptions are not valid, and by extent by extension, the results are completely uh, biased, and they, they we cannot. Uh, uh, they cannot hold water. Our guest uh, from the professor of uh, professor at the Telper School of Management at the University of Ottawa is Noor El Qadri talking about a survey from uh, Angus Reid. Uh, I, I wanted to get into a little bit here uh, of uh, a survey uh, that was based in the States. This is not, of course, the Angus Reid survey when it comes to Canada, but fewer than half Americans, 47%, say they could vote for a Muslim presidential candidate. Uh, again, I, I, I know we're kind of deviating from what we were talking about, but does that figure surprise you? Uh, it, it, it doesn't surprise me at, uh, at all. In fact, I checked the surveys from the United States. They are scientific, and they're good surveys. So you can generalize from them. Um, I, I suspect the Canadian ones uh, to be much better. But it only makes sense to compare apples and apples, to compare two scientific surveys when you want to talk about Canadians versus Americans. One survey was done properly, even though in the different context in the United States, but it is a scientific survey. The Canadian survey is a non-scientific one. Um, it doesn't uh, um, cover um, uh, the base of the population. 
And people talk about these types of um, uh, situations. There are lots of examples that they tell you that you cannot generalize from those things. One, one, one survey that I talk about it a lot in my classes when I teach at the university is that they did a survey from an apartment building talking to people about the ban of pesticides, mm-hmm. okay, who, does, who don't have gardens, who don't have rural places, and they, don't, uh, and they got 100% support for that. Well, that doesn't represent the population, okay? It's not people that are using pesticides. These are people that never use pesticides. They don't have gardens to, uh, to use pesticide at or, or, law, uh, or lawns um, that uh, they want to clean their glass, grass. And uh, they generalize from, from these types of things. And that was a completely refutable one. And people discuss about it as, a, as an L one. This one is the worst I've ever seen in Canadian surveys. I've seen polls that were off. I've seen surveys that were um, not that scientific. Um, they tried to tweak a little bit, but this one rocks bottom. I'm wondering if you've had a chance uh, when a survey like this comes out, and, and of course this is what you teach at the University of Ottawa, uh, have you expressed your concerns to, to Angus Reid or other pollsters to say that this is kind of skewed and it's not really indicative of what is going on in the country? Um, I, um, I didn't have a chance uh, to do that or, or talk about it, but uh, what, what is interesting is Angus Reid talks about it itself. I mean, they, in, in the end of the survey, they say that we can't talk about a margin of error in this, in this survey because the, the sample was not random, and that completely kills the, uh, the objectivity of the survey and, and the results of, uh, of the survey. Uh, then uh, that that kind of leads me to my next question is, if, if that's the case, then why is Angus Reid even doing a poll that has something to do with this, or, or generally other polls that may also not be indicative? Well, uh, there are um, multiple factors that they would probably consider. One of them might be that if they are paid to do such a survey, uh, and or if they have any some, uh, any person they're favoring to have this survey for. Uh, I, I, don't, I really don't know. I mean, just, I'm raising questions. Why would a reputable company like Angus Reid commission a survey that they know it is not scientific? They know they don't have a margin of error that they could claim in that. Because the basics of any survey, they will tell you that this survey is true uh, 19 out of 20 times, or there's a margin of error of plus or minus 3%, and those are usually acceptable surveys. And they are done with a sample of, of this number. They, they do it for uh, landlines, for cellular lines, for, for the Internet. They, they do that survey across the, the board, uh, making sure that they have proper representation from seniors, from millennials, from the youth, from, uh, from all spe- the spectrum of the so- uh, society, so that they can extrapolate a, and generalize the numbers from a 1,500 people to 35 million or 20 million uh, people who could vote. In order to generalize, you need to have those basic uh, facts set in place. Randomness, having a, an error margin uh, that, that you can rely on. The fact that uh, Angus Reid did not um, um, follow those basic principles, uh, they know way much better uh, themselves tells you raise uh, it asks you to raise big questions about the credibility of the organization when they start uh, doing these types of things 
I'm curious, and, and of course we're talking about just the results of the Angus Reid survey. Uh, is it, and we're asking for your opinion here, not necessarily from your, your role at the University of Ottawa, uh, if this is the case of the majority of Canadians consider voting for a Sikh transgender or unilingual prime minister, I'm wondering how much of that would be based on the current uh, political landscape in Ottawa, the, the prime minister, of course, who uh, has been uh, shown to be a man of the people and uh, talking about various ethnic groups and, and, and represent, uh, representing groups that way. How much of that is based on the success so far of Prime Minister Trudeau? Um, I, I think it's it's the success of the uh, people as a progress, progressive society. Prime Minister Trudeau uh, has a role to play in that, but there are many um, many others. We've seen um, Jack Layton with the NDP program um, doing similar things. We've seen uh, even some figures from the Conservative Party doing those, and uh, now the Prime Minister Trudeau is pushing the envelope a little bit. Um, being uh, front and center, for instance, in, in the gay parade, uh, celebrating Ramadan with, uh, with Muslims, um, Paisaki with the Sikhs, and, and, and going with, with all the ethnic uh, groups. That, that has been um, very, uh, very useful. Uh, appointing the first two Muslims, for instance, to his cabinet, four Sikhs to his cabinet, they, they have uh, added to that. But, but this, this is mainly, and that's, that's my personal subjective opinion, uh, being geared by uh, the um, rise of progressive politics. We've seen this with Bernie Sanders in the United States. We've seen this with Jeremy Corbyn in uh, in England. Um, Ireland elected uh, the youngest um, prime minister, a gay prime minister, and a minister, prime minister from, a, from an ethnic minority just a few weeks ago. So um, that's, that's happening all around the world. It's not only in Canada. We're seeing progress on that front. And unexpected, this uh, this is going to be the case. People are looking beyond uh, uh, others' uh, sexual orientation or religion or, um, or or faith or whatever uh, or what they wear on their head or not, and they are looking at credentials and they're looking for the people who could stand up for their issues, for their causes. And um, I believe the internet and globalization uh, have created a lot of that uh, as millennials these days. Uh, and I deal with many of them at the university. And I'm seeing those changes happening over the last 15 years that people are more, uh, 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 I would say, embracing of, of diversity, the embracing of, uh, uh, of minorities, and um, they look beyond um, uh, that diversity into uh, into what the people stand for and what they're worth, rather than uh, um, um, their looks, their sexual orientation, and other things. You know, you actually touched on a point that I was just going to uh, to mention. Uh, you're obviously dealing with younger people generally. Uh, you're being uh, you being a professor at the University of Ottawa. Use the term millennials. There's a lot of people who say that millennials don't care about politics, and millennials don't really care about. Uh, anything at all, um, you're, you're telling me that the group that you talk to, and of course this is part of their curriculum, but are they more engaged and uh, kind of more proactive in getting involved in politics and what's been happening beyond their four walls? Uh, there, there have been lots of uh, changes going on in the world. At the University of Ottawa, Kevin Page uh, led a group of uh, youngsters 
um, a couple of years ago before the elections. And uh, uh, they had a big campaign, I Vote, J Vote, where leaders came to, to the university from politics of politics. And a political event attended by 1,400 students was something that was never heard of at any university, and it happened at the University of Ottawa. And we are seeing more and more youth uh, participating. Uh, in a few years ago, in the elections, the municipal elections in Calgary, when Nahid Nanshi ran for mayor, we have seen a big rise in the youth and minorities, in and mainly in uh, uh, in electing that uh, mayor, who's probably a, a multicultural mayor, a Muslim, in a uh, in in very um, conservative Calgary back uh, back then. Um, it was. Um, Talked about in more in all analyses that in uh, in the UK in the last election that happened uh, a few weeks ago, um, Jeremy Corbyn has got a big boost to his campaign that was happening from the millennials and from the youth that participated, and very few of those they participated in the Brexit vote. Um, I, I was attending a conference in London a few days before the Brexit uh, happened. Everybody was talking about. If we don't have a boost in the population of uh, youngsters and millennials, voting Brexit will go the way that it has gone. And um, in this election, we have seen a complete shift. Uh, when everybody thought that Jeremy Corbyn is going to go down, he's gone, he's gone up significantly. Uh, and it was the best showing uh, for, for a political party between two successive elections in, the, in terms of the increase of vote. And it was mainly given to, or the credit was given to millennials and, and youth. That's a, a trend that is going all around the world. Uh, um, the internet globalization is, is taking a big part of that. Social media is engaging those people more and more. And uh, they're getting the issues closer to, uh, to their hands, to their smartphones. And they're becoming more, uh, more interested. I would see that trend that millennials and youth don't vote uh, being reversed in a very, very short period of time. A fascinating look at that uh, survey from Angus Reid. Uh, Kour El Nadri, professor at the Telfer School of Management at the University of Ottawa. Thank you for taking the time and breaking down the numbers. And we always say that polls can kind of be twisted or skewed or what have you, in every which way, and, and you've obviously proved uh, that theory and explained why. Thank you for the time and enjoy the rest of the afternoon. You too, Dad. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. How much pressure are men under? A study of Europe and U.S. and Canadian people said while suicide rates go up for men and women during times of economic pressure, the impact is higher on men. The survey found that American men who lost their jobs during a recession has a loss of identity. Joining us to talk about this uh, this recent study is a retired psychologist, Dr. Richard Amaral, who joins us on CHML. Uh, good afternoon, Richard. How are you, sir? Hey, good afternoon, Ted. I'm good, thank you. Uh, so let's, uh, first of all, uh, talk about this uh, this survey. And there's a lot that we can uh, talk about here. Uh, but off the top, um, are you surprised by um, the fact that one reason uh, is that the pressure on men to be providers is one reason that they have much higher suicide rates? Are you surprised by that? Uh, not too surprised. Um, but before we also continue, I just want to correct you. I apologize, but... I, uh, I'm, I'm still working. I'm not retired. Why do they put that down? Okay, then. All right. Thank you for that. Thank no, no you. No problem. But I, 
But you know, Ted, I actually I, I wanted to to clarify that particular point because it's got some relevance mm-hmm. to to the study. So, like this morning, you know, for example, I woke up and was feeling really under the weather, and I was really tempted to stay in bed. But I started to go through my calendar and started to look at, you know, um, the people, some of my clients, my caseload for today. And then I realized, you know, um, I I need to go to work because, you know, these are some people who've been waiting to speak to me for a while. And then I just realized afterwards, um, you know, that my job gives me a sense of purpose. You know, I got up in the morning and pushed through any kind of discomfort because, you know, there was a purpose for my day. And, you know, I started to think back about my father and other dads that I know who, you know, their reason at times for getting up as well is because of the, you know, the sense of obligation, the sense of responsibility they have to the people they work for, you know, and and the people they work with. And so when we're talking about unemployment and the impact it can have, on a person. Um, I think these are some of the reasons, you know, is that there's this loss of a sense of purpose. There's this loss of a sense of camaraderie. You know, my friends were working and, and, um, and I knew them well, they cared for me, but now they're gone. And, and there's this, you know, additional, this is like sense of isolation. So you could see how um, when it comes to a person's own mental health and, and just their outlook for the day, a job plays such an important role in how they feel about themselves. Our guest is registered. I, I, I don't know why. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Not retired. <laughs> registered psychologist, Dr. Richard Amaral, talking about this new survey. Uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Amaral, I don't know if you're aware of the fact that I do host a mental health show here on CHML. So this is uh, this is right uh, right down yeah. right down Main Street for me. Before we yeah. start talking about all the numbers and what have you, we talk about uh, men and feeling a sense of overwhelmingness and uh, the pressures and everything else, um, all combined, is mental health becoming a bigger factor? And we're going to talk about men here because mm-hmm. this is what this, the survey deals with. Mm-hmm. Are they becoming, is this a bigger deal now for men than maybe it was, as you mentioned, during your father's years? Yeah, well, I think that's a good question. I mean, I think there are factors that even affect that. So, for example, I think, you know, cultural attitudes towards dads, towards men, and the expectations that, you know, we grow up and hearing, you know, unconsciously or even directly, you know, from our parents saying, you got to be the provider, you know, you need to go out there, you need to earn a living and, and support your family. So, you know, those, you know, those kinds of messages were, have been around, you know, for centuries, decades, and I think they're, they're still there, perhaps, not as, um, how do I say, maybe not always so as loud as they used to be. So going back to that role of the factor of culture, is that I think, at least my experience, Ted, my experience in my work, is I'm finding there is a lot more acceptance um, that when a dad or, you know, when a man is unable to work, that there's a little more acceptance that, you know, there are other things he can do for the family that um, can give him this sense of purpose. Uh, on the flip side, though, it doesn't mean that I, I still think that that's still a very small percentage. You know, I don't think that's a message that's being accepted by a lot of 
a lot of guys, a lot of men. But I do think that there's something there. Um, is is the term uh, hit to the masculinity? And I, I know that we're fighting the battle now that, you know, it's okay to share your feelings and your emotions and you don't have to do that. But is that blow to the masculinity still part of the major reason why men would go down this path of suicide ideation? Yeah, you know, uh, maybe a blow to the masculinity or blow, sort of blow to the ego. You know, that, that voice inside of us that tells us, you know, who we are, our place, you know, in society, our place in a family, our place in the relationships with people we care about. Um, you know, I, I think, yeah, it does get affected. Um, you know, we go back to this piece around identity, you know, and I mentioned also previously just this, the culture component. You know, I, I've gone in some, in some of my travels, you know, uh, having... When I'm meeting someone for the first time, sometimes they'll ask me, so, um, you know, what what do you like to do? You know, whereas, so like, what are your hobbies? What are your interests? Who are you? Um, but what I find is that in, in many Western, you know, here in, in Canada and even in the U.S., is that when you're meeting someone for the first time and the question they'll often ask is, so, you know, who are you? What do you do? So as though... The things we do on a day-to-day basis defines who we are. You know, that's what that kind of question is implying. So you can imagine if you're not working and therefore are not doing, quote-unquote, anything, then, um, then when someone asks you that question, you're sort of face, you know, you, you start to think about, well, what do I do? Who am I? I used to be a factory worker. You know, I used to make parts for GM. You know, I used to be a custodian. Now I'm not even that. So who am I? So you see this sort of this loss of identity. And in terms of the masculinity piece you asked about, I do think that that has a lot to do with, you know, again, the messages that a lot of men and young boys get about their role in, in a family unit, which is that, you know, be the bre- breadwinner, be the provider. You're the one that has to, you know, pay off the mortgage or making sure everyone is is doing financially okay. And so um, I think that's sometimes pressure that we put on ourselves. And so when we get unemployed, it's a really difficult adjustment. And uh, taking that, <coughs> pardon me, one step further, uh, the survey said uh, Canadian men between the ages of 50 to 69 had the size, highest suicide rates across both genders. That kind of talks to your point about providing for the family for all these years. Used to be a worker at GM. Not the case anymore. Um, should there be alarm bells sounded about that particular uh, statistic and demographic group? Yeah, I, I think probably in a couple of ways, maybe an alarm bell. One is I do think, you know, that, uh, you know, I hate to say the government all the time, but maybe if there were some agencies or so forth, government agencies that would sort of look at, you know, um, sending the message to employers that just because you're old doesn't mean you're unproductive or doesn't mean you don't have value. And so I think sometimes, you know, when you get when you are in your 50s and you get laid off, um, I think when you're looking for work, the employer who's interviewing you might be half your age. And I do think at maybe an unconscious level, it does play some kind of it does have an influence in terms of, you know, your employability. 
So I think in terms of you know getting that message out there to employers and to, and to even the people themselves that hey, just because you're old doesn't mean you know you you're no longer of any use. And I think the other piece that's important is that um, I think men also need to realize that if you are struggling with these kinds of thoughts, that you do need to get help. So one statistic that speaks to the difference between men and women is that men are four times more likely to commit suicide than women, four times. And one of the reasons, people say, well, why is that? Well, one reason is because when a woman sometimes thinks like this, thinks and feels hopeless or thinks some suicidal thoughts, oftentimes they're more likely to seek help, to seek help, to get some kind of treatment, talk to someone about their fears, talk to someone about their struggles, and maybe feel a little bit more normal and accepted, uh, you know, feeling a little more accepting of where they are in life. Men, I don't think, are as likely to do that. Dr. Amel, then that tells me that the next point is there is still these, uh, quote-unquote, the macho image, I'm okay, I can deal with it. So, so this tells me, from the education standpoint, as much, as much progress as we've made, uh, when it comes to educating men, we still have a long way to go. Fair statement? Yeah, we do. But i got to tell you, I am very hopeful with how things are going. I mean, the, these studies were looking at men, you know, uh, I, I would assume, I haven't read this study exactly, but probably, you know, men who were employable, so in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and so forth. Um, but, you know, I've been working with a lot more adolescents and Ted in my practice, and I'm hearing these young kids are coming into my office, and, you know, the parents are telling me that it was the children, you know, the boys, who are asking the parents to go, they wanted to see a counselor or they wanted to see someone who knows about mental health because they're feeling sad or they're feeling worried. So what that speaks to me is that I do think there is slowly but surely a change in attitudes, especially amongst young people when it comes to mental health and getting help. Taking that one step further then, uh, are adolescents under a lot more so uh, societal pressures these days with social media and uh, competition to get the best education and get the job and what have you, are they under a lot more pressure than, say, you and I were when we were growing up? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of things, you know, a lot, a lot more anxiety that, you know, I didn't see in my, my peers, you know, and uh, when growing up in the, in the schoolyard and so forth. It's just seeing, you know, a lot more kids sort of worried a lot more kids sort of being concerned, you know, yeah, there's these pieces around, you know, cyberbullying, which is new, but a lot of children, you know, worried about like, what will I do? You know, I, my dad was telling me that I need to think of being an entrepreneur because nobody is going to be hiring me. No, there's no way I'm going to get, you know, benefits. And so I got to start thinking about an idea of how I can be my own boss. And so these are like 17 year olds and who are coming in and sort of having these kinds of conversations with me. So I do think they are in a very unique circumstance because these jobs that maybe our parents and even us had available to us with the you know 40-hour work week, the benefits, the pension, they're becoming more of a rarity. And I think uh, young kids are noticing and they are getting a little more anxious about it. 
Are businesses, um, in your experience, talking about uh, the uh, the older men, the, the group between 50 and 69, um, do you find now that businesses more and more are coming in uh, either with new ownership or the acquisitions or what have you, and basically coming in and not necessarily cleaning house, but just coming in and, and saying, okay, we don't need you anymore? Is is it your experience that businesses are, in fact, uh not quite the as they used to be 20, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, you know, the, well, I mean, it's hard to say. All I know is oh, my only, I guess, data sample is sort of what I'm reading in the papers and reading about, you know, big corporations like RBC letting go of, you know, several hundred and, and you know, several thousand people in Sears and all these big corporations just sort of closing shop. And then um, I remember reading something recently that said, they anticipate within five years, 25% of all shopping malls will no longer be existent because people are doing their, their shopping online. That's a lot of people who'll be out of work, you know, a lot of part-time and full-time employees, a lot of lives that will be affected by that. So I guess at the same token, while, while I do see a lot of corporations or, and hear about a lot of companies letting go and, and sort of thinking of a new way of doing business, um, what, at the same token, what I'm also hearing is of a lot of employers who are investing in some of these sort of like employee assistance or employee family assistance programs yep. where they focus, you know, they want to make sure that if there's staff who are you know, feeling unhappy or feeling stressed or they're, you know, they're coming to work thinking about the argument they had with their spouse or their child, and it affects their productivity, it affects the way they perform. Employers are recognizing that, you know, we got to make sure that that employee comes to work feeling good, you know, that they're and so they are investing in more money in those kinds of resources. Secondly, is I'm also hearing about employers who are, you know, investing in these sort of like um, resume building programs, getting some consultants and coaches to work with those who got it laid off so that the transition into a new job is looking a little more hopeful for them. I did want to ask this question, taking this another step further, and our guest is Dr. Richard Amaral, a registered uh, psychologist, talking about uh, uh, the pressures uh, of work and society on men and uh, the suicide rate. I'm wondering, are, do you get a lot of referrals and a lot of clients that are dealing with the R word? And the reason I ask that is this. At some point, my wife, well, my wife and I have had, as I call them, frank and open exchanging of views about when am I going to retire? Yeah. Not yet, but it is coming. There are yeah. people in this station who'd say I should do that tomorrow, and then they'll have a party for me, but I digress. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but the point is this. Uh, are you talking to, and in this case we're talking about men here, are you talking to more men who are maybe feeling a little anxious or suffering depression or they're just a little uneasy knowing down the road they're going to retire, and in many ways, their life is going to take a major, major turn. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if it's a lot more men, but I am. I just this past year, in sort of looking, reviewing my, just reflecting on my files and, and some of the issues I've been dealing with. But just in this past year, I must I've probably had about five people come in, just dealing with this transition into retirement, both men and women, and. 
you know, when it's the things they're saying to me is actually quite similar to, you know, what we started talking about at the beginning of the segment, which is this loss of identity, you know, this feeling of isolation. I had one person I was working with, you know, and she said that, you know, she had the purpose, you know, in going to work every day. And she also had so many friends and she didn't realize how much she looked forward to sort of having that coffee break at 1030 in the morning with her colleagues, because now 1030 in the morning, she's at home and all those friends are still working. And so there is this massive change in, you know, in, in, um, in sort of their connection, you know, this feeling of isolation and even feeling of loneliness. So I would say it's both men and women, but you're absolutely right, Ted, in that transitioning into retirement is a difficult process. So the last question then, what do you tell people uh, making suggestions? What should they be doing now if they're still a couple of years away from retirement and they're making that transition? What should they be doing now to avoid problems when they do retire? Yeah, so one of the things I start, I work with people is, you know, start identifying the, the things you're interested in and the things you would like to continue doing after you finish work. So that could be some hobbies. That could be, you know, just developing some new instruments. Um, it's important to keep learning. So that could be, you know, like I said, taking your hobby perhaps to another level where you start taking classes taking courses in it but it's important to keep your mind stimulated and when you do things like that you're addressing another need which is being more socially engaged you're developing new friendships you're develop you know and you're just getting out there more and that does so much for a person's mental health um and i would say that another thing is um you know start thinking about you know what what other purposes, you know, what other identities do you have? I mentioned earlier, you know, the example of like, I used to be a custodian, I used to be a factory worker, this and that. Yes, but you know what? You're also, you know, maybe a spouse, you're also a parent, you're a sibling, you're, you're someone's son. And so these are, you know, you're someone's friend. And these are also parts of your identity. So how can you continue to strengthen that part? Are there things you can do? to perhaps, you know, improve those relationships and and just strengthen that part of yourself that uh, other than work. Dr. Richard Amaral, a psychologist, a fascinating look at the study and uh, kind of what you deal with on a daily basis. Thank you so much for the time. Enjoy the rest of the afternoon and hope to talk to you soon. You're welcome. Thanks so much, Ted. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Eric Alper, music publicist, joins us. Eric, I've calmed down. How are you, sir? <laughs> well, you're not going to hear what I... I actually put that in my top five of all time. Oh, you did not. <laughs> I did. I did. I'm actually creating um, a list that I'm going to post on Twitter and Facebook of my top five Canadian albums of all time and my top five songs of all time, and that's actually number four <laughs> on my list. So, awesome to talk to you. Um, we'll talk next 150 years. So <laughs> All right. So now let's. Now that I've calmed down. You know, I'm 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 in the Zen now. I'm in the moment. It's all yeah, cool. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's, uh, Eric, very quickly. Uh, we've got Luke ready to go. So the Canada song list, which is on the global uh, global news's website, um, 
Okay, so here it is. So in no particular order, 50 amazing Canadian songs. So just because these are the top five doesn't necessarily mean that that's why they do it. So on the list, this is what they have as their number five top Canadian song. Right, Katie Lang, I get it. Constant craving. I really don't have an argument with that one. The next one people may roll their eyes at, but it is a slice of Canadiana, and we'll get to that one. And people, as I say, may go, but it's got to be on the list. Spread your tiny wings and fly away. And take the snow back with you where it came from on that day. Anne Murray, circa. 1969, 1970, that's a snowbird. Any problems with that one, Eric? I'm good with that. All right. So we've uh, done five and four now uh, on the Global News list. Number three is a song that obviously has to be on this list. Eve Paradise put up a parking lot With a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot All right, there's Joni Mitchell and the Big Yellow Taxi. Again, Eric, no problems with that one, I hope. Any list that has Joni Mitchell on the top five is a great list to be had. All right. Now, uh, we mentioned and we've been talking about this all day. And again, uh, it's not exactly etched in stone, the top 50, uh, but this is uh, the song they have uh, ranked as number two on this list. And clearly, we this one has to be on this list. I left your house this morning. All right, Bob Cajun from the Tragically Hip, Eric, uh, without any question, they have to be on that list, right? At least one of them. There was probably, oh, I don't know, maybe 45 songs that the Tragically Hip could have had in that top five. Yep. All right. And now let's go to what Global has as their, uh, the song at the top uh, of their Canada 150 song list. You have to excuse me, I'm not at my best. I've been gone for a week. I've been drunk since I left. And these so-called vacations will soon be Yep. Spirit of the rest. Boy, that, that just a zoo's party, doesn't it, Eric? Yeah, you, you know what? It, I, I, I'm i not a huge fan of the band. Mm-hmm. I absolutely respect everything of what they've done, but I think I must have been in, like, about, I don't know, 150 bars uh, <laughs> in my life where that's the closing song saying, you can sing along, you can go get drunk, and then get out of my bar. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much it. Our guest is Eric Alper. I'm Ted Michaels in for Scott Thompson as we uh, look through uh, the uh, list of some of the iconic Canadian music. Now, my personal favorite, and this is the one that um, is number 10 on the list, is a song that I think, uh, and of course, I'm I'm kind of in that, uh, you know, I'm setting this up to let people know why. I'm in the, uh, the group when I was in high school when this group was big, and this song really... Um, exudes Canadiana, and when you listen to it, you know exactly what they're singing about. I think it should be higher. It's number 10. It's the Guess Who running back to Saskatoon. Thoughts, Eric? I love that song. Um, I thought that either Taking Care of Business or American Woman would actually rank a lot higher in there because people tend to forget and take for granted thanks to the Canadian content rules and regulations that radio stations have to play at least 35% Canadian music. Before that, before 
you know, in the in the era of the Guess Who and Joni Mitchell and Neil Young and Leonard Cohen, they had to break on their own in an industry of the Canadian music industry that wasn't even existing to to even a smidgen of the point that it is now. And for the Guess Who to achieve what they were able to achieve, being one of the most popular groups ever in Canada, I thought that you know either uh, uh, American Woman or or Bachman Turner Overdrive, Taking Care of Business, would be up there. I think Running Back to Saskatoon means a lot for people just simply because they mentioned that Saskatoon in there, and there's not too many Canadian songs that get to name check places. You know. Um and and we should mention, and we've had this discussion in the CHML newsroom, which we do on occasion virtually every day about everything under the sun. Uh, the, there was a topic, um, and a lot of it came out last year when the Tragically Hip did their 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 farewell tour. And somebody had said that uh, the Tragically Hip are the most iconic Canadian band. And I kind of took umbrage and said, no, it's a guess who, and here's why. And as you mentioned, Eric, the fact that they had to stand on their own two feet and people uh, literally around the world noticed the guess who and again it's subjective but i would suggest uh, that the guests who are probably up there by the way eric we should mention that number eight on the list is bto's taking care of business so that song is covered as well uh by the way uh we did get an email from phil who said these are the canadian bands that he thinks should be on the list so there's the guess who rush saga triumph and arcade fire any uh questions about those eric no, I, I think, uh, you, you know, in taking a, a look at, at Global's list, too, there, there's a couple of uh, there's a couple of cool alternative bands on there. Sloan's got a couple of tracks. Broken Social Scene has a track in, their, uh, in, in the top 70, I believe. Um, but what's interesting about, you know, the, the, the argument, you know, of the Guess Who versus the Tragically Hip, I think the biggest kind of difference out of all of it is that the Tragically Hip never really went away from this country. The Guess Who and Randy Bachman and Burton Cumming, they all had success around the world, especially when it, when you're talking about Randy Bachman's solo stuff and the BTO and, and Brave Belt. Uh, the Tragically Hip, you know, had their pockets, certainly, when it comes to America or the UK. But it was it seemed like every summer you could guarantee that they were going to be rolling through your city, that they were going to be having and organizing their own festival or doing something really cool like a club tour as opposed to a stadium tour. And the way that they talked about our people and our culture and our government, it was never with a spotlight of all good. And I think the guess who, although that they mentioned certain things, they mentioned Saskatoon, they mentioned Winnipeg, it was always in a reminiscent light of of memories that mostly were good. But if you listen to, you know, a song like Bob Cajun, it's not really a happy topic. Mm-hmm. You know, they're really talking about you know, Toronto's working class Jewish community, you know, mixing with with anti-Semitism. Like there there's there's nothing really poetic brilliance about what they were actually talking about. And I think the Tragically Hip was able to do that and make people think that that it was still okay to talk about those things. Because it, it is okay. But when you talk about news on the CBC, when you talk about what happened with, with Leonard Peltier. Like, all of those things were a slice of history that Gordon and the guys wanted to put the spotlight on in order to make this country better. And that's still what they're able to do 
to this day. And uh, by the way, if people are curious about the top 50 list, you can go to uh, globalnews.ca and 50 legendary Canadian songs in honor of Canada's 150th birthday. You know, you talk about, and I keep going back to the guests who run it back to Saskatoon, and there was a movie released. Uh, it came out maybe a couple of years ago, and I, for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it. It, it doesn't matter. It is basically, it's a documentary with people playing the parts, and it was all about the Canada-Soviet Union series in 1972, and one of the songs that they use in the soundtrack was uh, Running Back to Saskatoon, and that just oozed Canadian, and I have flashbacks every time I hear that song because I know exactly where I was, and that's kind of what the neat thing is about music, right, Eric? You just kind of... It takes you back, and for those of us that are of a particular genre, uh, takes us back to what we were doing at that particular time. Absolutely, and even if you're not a fan of, of Anne Murray or Snowbird, which was written by Jean McClellan, whose daughter, Catherine, is actually, she actually just put out a brand new album um, of songs of Jean, and that song um, happens to be on there. But when you, when you think about all of these artists that may not mean anything specifically to a younger generation, uh, they really busted the doors open. You know, Snowbird was the first American gold single from America to a Canadian solo female artist. Like, she really broke it big so that artists like a Sarah McLaughlin, um, Alanis Morissette, Tegan and Sarah could actually have um, a system and a business to work in. Because even though that the 70s sometimes gets a little bit of a, of a rough knock for being, you know, maybe too schmaltzy or too stadium-y, um, the, their ability that all of these great artists, that, that classic rock stations are still playing to this day, just shows you just how amazing this music was. By the way, people, uh, we did get the email about Stompin' Tom Connors. A hockey song was number 38. I find it interesting, Eric, that uh, there's a, a list of people that are not, or musicians that are not on this list. Uh, Michael Buble, Billy Talent, Theory of a Dead Man, and here's one that sticks in my craw because it didn't, uh, until I started looking at the list, I thought, yeah, Steppenwolf isn't on this list. Why? I don't know. You know, I was looking for Born to be Wild by Stephen Wolf as well. And, you know, whenever I thought about those bands, like I thought maybe Billy Talent would have a song on there. I would think there might be at least a couple of Nickelback songs on there. Mm -hmm. And not to knock anybody's opinion or anybody's list, but they could have easily not put number nine, maybe tomorrow, the littlest hobo theme song in there. Because I don't really think that... I I don't know. As good of a song that is, is it better than Born to be Wild? I don't think so. But, you know, I, I think that there might be a couple of songs on there, like, you know, on this list. <laughs> and it's actually pretty funny because I would have never even thought about putting it on there. Um, the, the Zit song from, from Degrassi is, is on this list. So I thought, well, you know what? Uh, maybe you can take out those two songs and put songs in from, uh, from uh, maybe Billy Talent and also from Stephen Wolf. Also, Michael Buble, not on the list. Nickelback, Some 41, Our Lady Peace, Monster Truck. I, I mean, it wasn't until you uh, just mentioned it, but Terry Bush, maybe tomorrow, the theme for the littlest. <laughs> I, I don't understand why that song. It, it wasn't even a song. It was a theme. <laughs> yeah, you know, but I, I think it, I guess it kind of shows that you know, all lists don't have to be so serious. And if somebody chose it, then maybe, you know, it was on the list just as a lark and, uh, and that people voted in. You know, who, who are we to say as mere human beings 
that's somebody else's memory growing up watching that show on well tell you what you know tell you what i will substitute if if you're going to talk about themes i will substitute the theme for the littlest hobo with the theme from king of kensington you do that and i will match you by putting the tonight show theme song which was written by paul anka very good but paul anka's not on this list Paul Anka, you know, My Way, his version, yep. or Diana. How about I Jubilee? Mean, there's, no, there's no artist from the 50s on the crew cuts, the diamonds. The four um, lads, the four ace. The four lads. i got to stop this. <laughs> sure, sure. Every band with four in it. I mean, here's a song, and boy, now the memory banks are opening. When you talk about Paul Anka, here's a, a single that people perhaps didn't even know existed, but if they Google it, they may say to themselves, hmm. 1972, I believe, was the year, maybe 71. It was called... Which one you're going to play? Jubilation! (laughs) Right? Yeah, yeah. It was either going to be that or you're having my baby. No, no. But either either one of them could have been good. And look, forget about the fact that he's got dual citizen, which Paul Anka had from from the early 90s. But the fact is, though, that he... he, I mean, he went to America and and did his first single for like a hundred dollars back in nineteen fifty seven. Mm-hmm. I mean when we talk about the and and it's funny because magazines like Rolling Stone or Mojo magazine in the UK, they never forget where they came from. Their list of the greatest albums or the greatest songs always starts around nineteen fifty five, fifty six, fifty seven with Elvis Presley and then they go through the Buddy Hollies of the world. This list doesn't really have a lot of that. It doesn't have those building blocks of songs and artists. It seems very 1980s heavy, which is okay, because I think a lot of people who are reading this are going to be remembering when Bruce Coburn was on Much Music every 15 minutes, and Mm. rightfully so, with Lovers in a Dangerous Time, and if I had a rocket launcher, as opposed to some of his brilliant 1970s work. You know, and speaking of that, there's no Murray McLaughlin. You right. know, there's there's no kind of singer songwriter slash Mariposa folk festival artist um, on there. But I'm certainly glad that they didn't forget about Buffy Saint Marie's Universal Soldier, though. She's on there. Uh, yeah. McLaughlin, another one. Sarah McLaughlin is on with "I Will Remember You" and going through some of, of the other songs. Kim Mitchell, Patty O'Lanterns is a classic. That's number seven. Tom Sawyer by Rush is number uh, eleven. Uh, yes, Leonard Cohen and, and the classic "Hallelujah" is number thirteen. Neil Young, "Hey Hey My My" is number fourteen. There was a lot of Neil Young songs that came out. Um, I'm not sure that I take that one, but again, to each his own, right? Yeah, I was surprised that that song actually hit far more than, say, uh, Old Man or Rockin' in the Free World. Heart of Gold. Heart of Gold. I mean, you know, when you have a catalog like that, um, you know, sometimes those lists are like, well, you know, it's interesting because sometimes when when these people get to vote, you know, the difference between number seven and number 25 might just be one vote because three people happen to vote for it. Um, but that's the fun thing about lists is that, you know what, it's, and, and, and you said it in the beginning, it was like music just has a way to make you forget about bad times sometimes and good times, but it also has a really great way to make you remember as well. And I think, you know, anytime that we get to celebrate the fine Canadian talent that this country has punched above our weight for decades, especially in the last four or five years or so is truly remarkable because I haven't seen a time like this, even back in the day of Brian Adams and Corey Hart and Tom Cochran selling a million copies each in this country or Sarah McLaughlin and Celine Dion and Shania Twain and Alanis Morissette dominating the nineties. 
what is happening right now with Justin Bieber, Sean Mendez, Alicia Cara, The Weeknd is is simply unstoppable. And of course, you know, Drake, not only being the biggest Canadian artist going right now, but pretty much the biggest artist in the world. Um, by the way, you mentioned Justin Bieber. Sorry is number 46. The Weeknd is uh, number 48 with Starboy. Uh, we do have um, Brian Adams. Of, of course, if there ever was a Brian Adams song, uh, The Summer of 69 is number 39. Gord Lightfoot is, is, is on here as well. Uh, Corey Hart, Sunglasses at Night. Uh, prominent by its absence, of course, because they don't have time for this. I'm looking. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say Glass Tiger's not on the list, but they are number 21. Don't forget me when I'm gone. You you know, you, you think back to all this music, and it's like, you know, a lot of people complained. As you mentioned, the CRTC regs came out, and you had to play 30%. But, boy, there were a lot of great people in that 30%, weren't there? Yeah, and, and a lot of that credit can go towards something like Much Music. And, and um, you know, their their popularity and their influence is still, to this day, can't be understated, where all of these artists that we now know in the last decade that have been popular from YouTube or music streaming services or catching fire on blogs, for instance, much music had the ability to turn something into everything. Jen Arden loves to tell the story about the day before she got played on much music. Nobody, nobody knew who she was and nobody cared. The day that she got played on Much Music, people were stopping her in the streets, and that hasn't stopped for 35 years. And that's the power that music television and videos had before YouTube actually gave us the, the ability to play what we want, when we wanted, however many times we wanted to watch it. Much Music was the, the greatest gatekeeper when it came to music, along, and that kind of you know, went hand in hand with the with the music that radio was playing. And both of them together were just seemingly unstoppable still to this day. One more song I just thought of, one of my favorite groups that perhaps, and this is the assignment for the listeners this afternoon, the good listenership. Go to YouTube and Google McKenna Mendelssohn Mainline One-Way <laughs> Ticket. Huh? That's a great song. Yep. There you go. So, and it, which shows you, my age. We could talk about this and go through the list forever and ever. Eric Alper, music publicist, thank you very much for this. This has been a, this has been a hoot. Again, with all due respects to Maestro Fresh West fans, I'm sorry, but I don't think it should be on the list. Eric, we'll we'll talk to you soon at some point. I've enjoyed this. Thanks very much. Absolutely, and people can also just tweet at uh, AM nine hundred CHML. And, yep. You know, let's figure out what they want to be their their best song of all time. McKenna Mendelson Mainline. I'm telling you, Eric. Thanks for this. <laughs> Thanks, all right, man. all right. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.